Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out my other podcast covering brand new movies out in theaters or on VOD. It is called the Quipster Film Review Podcast. Just check it out at that website, Quipster.net. Today I'm going to be looking at the second part of our three-part look into the Mad Max films, at least from the 1980s, although the previous one was a 1979 movie. This one is in the 1980s, the second film in the Mad Max trilogy, as it was known before Mad Max Fury Road came out. It's called The Road Warrior. It's from 1981. Like the previous one, it is an R-rated film. It does have strong violence throughout, brief nudity and some language. The runtime is an hour and 35 minutes. Mel Gibson is the main star, along with Bruce Spence, Emil Minty, Mike Preston, Max Phipps, Vernon Wells, Virginia Hay, and many others. George Miller returns as director. He contributes to the screenplay along with Terry Hayes and Brian Hannant. Now, obviously, The Road Warrior is a follow-up to the 1979 film called Mad Max. Very simply, it was called at the time Mad Max 2 in its initial release in Australia and many other countries where it had proved lucrative. However, in the United States, where the original was poorly distributed and barely seen by most American audiences, it was retitled to The Road Warrior, primarily because, and you would figure probably rightly, that very few people would want to see a film called Mad Max 2 if they've never even heard of Mad Max. That alternate title of The Road Warrior has proven to take hold so that most countries call it by a more complete title, Mad Max 2, colon, The Road Warrior, in order to avoid all confusion. However, being an American, I've always known this film as The Road Warrior, so my apologies to those of you who are used to calling it Mad Max 2. It's the same film. I just happen to call it by what I've always called it. There's some narration here at the beginning and end of this film. It bookends The Road Warrior. It implies that while all of this is set in a post-apocalyptic future in which society's dependence on oil and other resources eventually leads to nuclear war and the subsequent collapse of civilization, the events that we see in between the narration is set sometime in the past to the narration. Nevertheless, approximately five years after the events of Mad Max, which was set supposedly a few years into the future. No wife, no child, no job, no home. The road warrior finds the titular hero, Mad Max himself, just living from day to day with just his Australian cattle dog by his side in pursuit of scrounging up enough food and enough gas to make it to the next instance of food and gas. Max is wandering through the now lawless wasteland, formerly known as Australia, end up taking him to a fortified oil refinery where there's plenty of precious fuel, but there's also a vicious gang of murdering marauders led by a hockey-masked and muscle-bound leader named Lord Humongous. They want to get their hands on that oil, and they give the residents an ultimatum of imminent death should they not comply with the demands of the marauders. The colony at the oil refinery who are living there They need to escape in a hurry, but they also want their fuel, and Max strikes a bargain with them. He'll secure an abandoned big rig for them to haul their fuel in exchange for as much gas as he can carry away in his car. The problem is that the marauders are not going to let anyone escape without a fight. That's the basic premise of this film. It's a very simple premise, but there's so much more to the story than just the plot. I mean, this is a movie that is just a visceral experience, and sequels that are better than the original films 
I would say are very few and very far between, but I do think that the Road Warrior is a prime example of one that is not only superior, but it's almost without question for most people who see these two films back to back. It has a better story, it has more explosive action, it has crazier stunt work, more adept direction, and more gorgeous cinematography. And this time, there is a score that actually enhances rather than detracts from the momentum of the film. It's a much more violent movie than the first one in terms of showing the actual violence on the screen. Interestingly, it was meant to be even more violent than what we see in the finished product because the Australian censors at the time requested that several of the more graphic acts had to be pared out in order to get released in the country. And in America, there were even a couple of more shots that were censored in order to get an MPAAR rating. If you watch this on video, you're probably seeing the more graphic Australian version, but the one that was uncensored completely, well, that version has never surfaced, at least not to date. This film continues portraying Max as an anti-hero, perhaps even more so in this film, as he's no longer bound by his duty as a cop, and he's exceedingly reluctant to have to choose sides in this battle to come, even though he clearly views one side as good and one side as evil. As with the original Mad Max, George Miller here is making his simple premise work by being edgy and unpredictable in the way that it carries out. Characters here are very fallible, some that you think are slated to live by the end end up biting the dust before it's all over, and then there are a few other surprises strewn about. Although this is still a motor vehicle western in its story, George Miller here takes less of a spaghetti western stylistic approach than in his previous effort. He instead mixes it more with traditional story elements from westerns like 1953's Shane, especially in the feral kid character, and in 1975's A Boy and His Dog. And on top of that, he goes for more of the George Lucas, Steven Spielberg way of filming that was rampantly popular in the early 1980s. He snatched Lucas's penchant for taking elements of Akira Kurosawa's samurai films, something that Sergio Leone had been enamored with as well for his westerns, as well as his adherence to Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey blueprint for storytelling, injecting Max into that basic formula. Miller was surprised to have learned how well the original Mad Max from 1979 had translated to different languages in many cultures, each of them who viewed the character of Max through the lens of their own myths and myth-making. Miller felt that building upon that myth that is common among us through Campbell's studies as developed in his The Hero with a Thousand Faces would only further the connection with people around the world to his character arc. Not only Max, but each character, from Humongous to the Gyro Captain, they would all have a rich backstory developed that made them who they are by the time that we see them within the film, even though the backstory for each of these characters might never actually be explicitly expressed within the dialogue. The themes of The Road Warrior encroach into well-trod Western territory, mostly in the differential between communities who are striving for civilization and the uncivilized horde, complete with bows and arrows, while the most notable one, named Wes, sports a Native American hairstyle known as the Mohawk. They're out there in the untamed lands. They seek only to exploit those who want to build up their way of life. The supposed good guys wear lots of white in contrast to the marauders, who are clad mostly in black. Mad Max being the exception of this rule because he's also dressed mostly in black, but he is the anti-hero. These marauders are out there mostly to enrich themselves for the day. There is also a moment in this film in which the clan at the oil refinery are offered a bargain. Life and safety if they just walk away and let the marauders have their fuel. A debate ends up erupting among the oil refinery clan 
on the right path that they should go. Ultimately, they decide to fight, mostly because they realize that without a place to call home, they're going to end up no better than the marauders in the end. This is also implied by Max. He's a former cop, if you tack on continuity with the first film anyway, who is now a do-for-self-drifter, a la the spaghetti westerns that George Miller sometimes uses as inspiration. And the implications also extend to the leader of the villainous gang, Lord Humongous, who rationalizes that his cutthroat way of life is the only way to survive now, and that they've all lost someone that they loved to the scourge of anarchy. Originally, Humongous was meant to be revealed as Goose, from the first Mad Max film, Max's colleague on the police force, who would, at least in that interpretation, have completely surrendered to the scum that he once took down as an MFP officer. However, Miller eventually decided against explaining the origins of Humongous explicitly on the screen. By contrast, the leader of the oil refinery clan, Papagallo, Papagallo being the Italian word for parrot, he also says that they've lost a lot too, just like the Marauders, but they are still human beings. They have dignity. The only difference between them and the garbage outside, as Papagallo says, is that they have not given up. Now, as for Spielberg style, I've alluded to earlier, the Road Warrior and Raiders of the Lost Ark, which came out the same year, feel very similar in the way that they're shot with these zooming close-ups. Both films also feature an extended battle sequence for control of a large truck, although in Miller's film, it's the main set piece of the climax, and that makes it the most important part of his film. For Spielberg's part, he liked George Miller's work in The Road Warrior so much that he ended up hiring him for his next production, and that was directing the best, arguably, of the four stories for Twilight Zone, the movie, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. And oh, what a sequence that truck siege ultimately is, with huge stakes for the film and for its characters, with nail-biting tension and intrigue. It culminates in one of the most memorable narrative turns, and that's followed by one heck of an iconic shot of the battered hero as the film drifts off from its epilogue. Now, to create the look of a post-apocalyptic world, the locale for filming would be this fly-spec town about 800 miles west of Sydney. It's a mostly abandoned mining town called Broken Hill. The mine that really established Broken Hill had been excavated of all the known ore that could be extracted, and that prompted most who lived there to relocate, to move away for more employment or better way of life. The costs for shooting and staying there at Broken Hill, therefore, was less expensive, although still, the Road Warrior would end up becoming the most expensive Australian production to that date anyway. And the rundown nature of the mostly desolate environs fit in perfectly with the civilization on the decline nature of the story. As everyone was dressed in either punk rock hairdos or fetishistic wardrobe, there were few around that would really question their appearance on and off the set, especially as the town's remaining inhabitants actually worked in The Road Warrior as extras. Mel Gibson here, he's as assured a hero as there has ever been, but he only had 16 lines of dialogue to utter. I would say the real star of the movie, above and beyond just Mel Gibson, is the stunt work, which is absolutely insane. It's really hard to believe stuntmen were not severely maimed or killed on the set on a daily basis, given how dangerous and destructive many of these stunts look to be. It's bonkers, and then some. Now, it might be built on a thin comic book premise, but for all-out action movie fans, it really does not get much more thrilling and exhilarating than The Road Warrior. George Miller, when he was making The Road Warrior really saw this as the end of Mad Max's journey. He wanted to leave Mad Max's legacy as a drifter as unknown, but 
the financial success would see him return several years later when a semi-adaptation of William Golding's Lord of the Flies, following a group of kids who live in a post-apocalyptic world, at least in Miller's version, that didn't pan out, so Miller would eventually mold that screenplay into what would become Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. George Miller would also revisit the Road Warrior structure and its execution again in Mad Max Fury Road many years later, which is essentially a reinterpretation of the Road Warrior with higher production values, more pageantry, and modern thematic underpinnings. It would also be proclaimed by some viewers as the best in this series and improbably even garnered an Academy Award nomination for Best Picture. As I mentioned in my previous episode, I am not going to discuss Mad Max Fury Road. It's way too far outside of the realm of the 1980s, but I do encourage you to check out my other podcast, the Quipster Film Review Podcast. There is a review of that. If you check through some of the older episodes, you will find it. As far as what I'm giving The Road Warrior, I'm giving it three and a half stars out of four. Three and a half stars on my scale means I do think this is a good movie. It's a fantastic action picture. If you're an action movie fan, there's really probably nothing more exhilarating than watching The Road Warrior. It is shot with such great eye for cinema. Mel Gibson at his most appealing, and it's just riveting from beginning to end. So I do encourage you to watch The Road Warrior if you haven't seen it already. So three and a half stars out of four is what I'm giving The Road Warrior. So obviously I consider it the best of the Mad Max films, even if you take into account Mad Max Fury Road for a lot of reasons. But the next film in this series is actually a pretty interesting one on many levels, even though I probably consider it the lesser of all of them. It is Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, and that will be the review that I cover on my very next episode. Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, which came out in the middle of the 1980s, in 1985 to be exact. If you're keeping up with me, you should check that out for the following episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this review. If you have your own thoughts on this film or any of the films in the Mad Max series, I do encourage you to reach out to me. You can find my contact information at my website at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Until next time, thanks, everyone, for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies.